Welcome to the Refuge Church Podcast, where we long to see the lost saved, the saved transformed, and the transformed sent. For more information on Refuge Church, or to learn how you can give to this ministry, visit refugejacks.church. If you have a Bible, there's one around you. Find Luke chapter 4. Uh, if you have your journal, that's also a good place to look. Um, today, we're going to be talking about uh, the temptation of Christ um, in Luke chapter 4. Uh, the plan right now is um, to, um, at the end of the sermon, man, I'm just going to pray and we're going to transition straight into communion. So make sure you locate a communion cup. Uh, the wafer is actually on top of the cup somewhere near you. Um, if you don't have one, look around. I know there's a lot of folks over here and not as many over here. So uh, make sure you guys have one located uh, so that you don't get left out in a little while and have to get up and make things weird. And, you know, we don't want to do that to you. So you don't want to do that to yourself either. So uh, go ahead and have that. Be ready with that because I think it'll be helpful in a little while. So we're in like, uh, I think, week six of our Luke study. Um, here and, and really the plan is to go all the way through the book of Luke leading up to Easter in 2022 um, is the plan and we'll hit the Easter story of Luke at the same time as we're studying the Easter story of Luke. So we're in chapter four this morning and we're going to talk about temptation, but here's, here's what's going to happen. We're actually not going to talk as much about how you and I deal with temptation, but about how Christ dealt with temptation, uh, man, for you and I. So let's just kind of go ahead and get in because there's a lot to talk about here. Um, when I was in college, I was 19, I worked at Frank Wilson's Tents and Events um, and Rental Supplies and snow cone makers. Like that was one of those kind of places. And so we would set up these large tents, rent out snow cones, rent out bobcats. Um, I worked there as just, man, the, one of the manual labor guys, putting myself through college. And, and while I was there, uh, we owned a, a flatbed truck where the bed would raise up and you could dump things off. Everybody kind of on that same page. Um, and, and so, you know, if you had something heavy, you stick it on there, you dump it off, throw it on the ground, makes life a little easier. Uh, if you had to take some dirt, there you go. Concrete, there you go. Well, one day I had to run to Home Depot. Um, and uh, so they said, hey, Josh, this is what they said. Will you take the van... Go to Home Depot, pick up some concrete, bring it back to the office. We need it for a project. I said, yes. Um, the van was not fun to drive, didn't have air. Uh, the truck had air, so I took the truck. Um, you may have been there before. So I hopped in the truck, drive to Home Depot. Now, um, this, this, um, this bed of the truck that dumped was wider than the body of the truck. You have to kind of kind of know that for where I'm going to go, okay? So you got the front of the truck, I think it was a Ford, and then you got this bed that was several inches wider on each side that lifted up. Um, well, I pulled into a parking spot at Home Depot, and I just kind of whipped it in real fast. Um, it was just a normal parking spot. There's a car here, car here. There was space for me. As I pulled in, um, not sure if you've been here before, but as I began to pull in, I began to hear this just metal-on-metal metal screeching sound as I pulled into the parking space. And I knew immediately what had happened. I, but I, for some reason, I finished. I didn't, like, stop. I continued all the way down, um, got out, and the car to my left was fine. The car to my right, which was a Camaro, which was in uh, fairly decent shape, uh, like a nice, nicer car, uh, was not in the shape it was when it first arrived at the Home Depot. And so there was now a giant metal gash all the way down the side of this Camaro. 
And so I had that, so I said, first thing I did is probably what you do when you're caught or you do something stupid is you just start to look around to see who saw it, right? So I started looking around and I'm looking and like I'm standing outside of the car, I'm looking around and I'm realizing that, that there's no one around. And then I had this moment of what am I going to do? Because if I call the office and say, hey, I just destroyed a Camaro with the truck you told me not to bring, it's probably going to lose my job, right? But I also could just leave. But I also could call the police, wait on the authorities, wait on the guy to come out and possibly kick my butt, right? Because I just destroyed his car or girl. You know, either way, we're good. So like, I just remember sitting there and having that moment of what do I do? I know the right thing and I know the wrong thing. Like, I want you to take a minute before we jump into this passage to think on that very idea. Like, I know the right thing. I know what I should do or I know what I shouldn't do. What am I going to do? We've all had that moment, right? We've had that moment on, on big scales. If I do this, it could really wreck my life. Or if I eat this donut, I'm breaking that sugar fast. Like, like on every level, and we've done this. Like, think about that moment of, I know what I should do or shouldn't do. What am I going to do? That's what temptation is. It's, it's what am I going to do? There we go. So that's fun. So it's all right. Um, that threw me off. What am I going to do? So Luke 4 is about the temptation of Christ following his baptism as he begins his ministry. Now, let me, let me start out by just laying out this so we're all aware. James chapter 1, which you can write down and kind of reference later, verses 12 through 15 teach us that, 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 that God never tempts us. There are tests for sure, but we should never consider that God is tempting us. Man, man, surely he, he tests other times, but there's often an idea that God places like sin in front of us to see how we'll respond. And, and that's, that, that can't not be an idea we live with as Christians. God cannot be near sin. James 1 actually says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Listen, when I pulled that car in and destroyed that Camaro, I did not remain steadfast under trial. I was a new believer. And it says, men, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 13, listen, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Do you get that? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, James says, by his own desire. Like you want something and you're willing to do even harmful things, sinful things to get it. Verse 15 says, And that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, so man, just, I need you to see, as we kind of go into this, is that God doesn't tempt us. I mean, we, we, we walk ourselves into sin. Satan man, tempts us for sure on some level. But, but God never goes, here's some sin, Josh. What are you going to do? James 1 actually goes on to say, Do not be conceived. God is actually the giver of good things, the giver of life. And, and, and then I would say this one more time, and I would encourage you to write it down, and sin always brings death. Sin always brings death. When I choose this, it's going to kill something. So verse 1, we're going to see this account in the next 13 verses of Jesus, um, of Jesus dealing with temptation, three specific temptations that Satan's going to throw his way. So verse 1 says, uh, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So if you remember kind of last week, he had just been baptized by John the Baptist in Jordan. And it says, full of the Holy Spirit, um, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. 
So one of the things you have to know is that Jesus leaves in his human state, affirmed and encouraged with his calling. It also says he submitted to the spirit, meaning he enters temptation and postured rightly. And to be submitted to the spirit man, requires for you and I intimacy with Jesus, requires knowledge of Jesus, requires pursuing a holy life. And these are, these are things we're to be about. And this is, um, he goes into the wilderness. Now, we, we see in scripture all throughout the, this idea of wilderness. You see, John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness eating bugs and cut, covered and says in camel's hair to preach his message. If you go to the Old Testament, you see over and over people in the wilderness. The wilderness in scripture is a location of intense experience. In need of food or, or water, in isolation or in danger, in need of divine deliverance or renewal, an encounter with God, revelation of God, revelations from God, experiences with temptation. All through Scripture, we see God's people having experiences in the wilderness. And so that should tell you and I, if we're Christ followers, that we shouldn't be surprised when you and I as Christians have a wilderness-type experience. And I would also point out, man, the And the revelation of God also teaches that following a wilderness experience often comes a great move of God. Not not a great move of you, but oftentimes we get to experience a great move of God around us. In this passage, Jesus is being driven into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Verse 2, for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Can we just pause? Can we be really clear what 40 days means? I said this first service, and I'll tell you guys this. Here's what I know. Around 11, which we're approaching, some of you guys are going to just start to get hangry. Because you hadn't had lunch yet, right? Like you know yourself, maybe that's your spouse and not you. I don't know kind of where your life is. Some of you feel like, you know, alarmed and triggered right now. And I just, I just, I know. Like I have a whole bunch of people in my house. And at certain times, you don't have to look at a clock. You just know it's time to eat, right? Because the anger in the room, right? So in the same way, here's what I need you to see. For 40 days, he didn't eat. We kind of see this and go, he was probably kind of hungry. No, no, If you don't eat for 40 days, you're not kind of hungry. You're not hangry. And your body is actually probably physically changed to some degree because it's processing a life of 40 days without food. You can't just simply say he was, he was hungry. And there's more going on there. He needed, his body would have needed sustenance, right? And for 40 days, he ate nothing, it says, while being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they ended, he was hungry. And one of the things this reveals to us is Jesus was fully man. He fasted for 40 days. He ate nothing and was hungry. And don't dismiss this as, well, he was God. And while true, he was God, he was also fully man. We see here his divine nature and his human nature at the same time on display. We see God incarnate. God doesn't get hungry, but Jesus here being fully man is hungry. Jesus is being tempted by Satan. Man, there are two things I want you to see before we do the rest of this. Two things I need you to see. The first thing is, man, man, we see this, the temptation of Jesus, and it sounds kind of nice and politically correct and kind. what What a better title might be war with the enemy. Man, don't read this as a small, friendly conversation of two equals, man, trying to trip each other up. Think about movies. In movies, we often see the bad guy and the good guy having civil conversation about their, how, how they're going to take the other one out. And this is not the battle we see here. This is not the battle of Scripture. I mean, during the Reformation in the 16th century, Martin Luther is said to have felt the presence of Satan so strongly in his life that one night he threw an inkwell at him in his study 
while studying. Men, we often don't think very well of Satan attacking us. We don't like to talk about it because we don't fully understand it. It sounds weird, and if we're that Christian that goes, yeah, well, there's a devil and he's facing us, we feel like people are going to think we're weird. And I don't know if you've experienced praying over someone who is being ravaged by Satan, but it's real. Listen to me, church, and I want you to write this down. This is not going to be encouraging, but this is the most truthful thing, or one of the most truthful things I think you can hear this morning. And it's a thing we don't say enough in church. Ready? Satan hates you. He doesn't like dislike you. He doesn't think you like smell bad a little. He hates you. He hates your marriage. He hates your spouse. He hates your kids, your life, your home, your dreams. Do you realize the things that bring you joy he hates? And to be a Christian is to be at war with an Ill, a real enemy at all times. Listen, Satan hates your church involvement. He doesn't want you to be here to be encouraged. Satan hates Ministry that is done, gospel missions, gospel proclamation, teaching kids about Jesus, like pray for our teachers. When Jesus hates when we serve widows and when we serve orphans, I can tell you from firsthand experience, man, man, the attack you feel in foster care and adoptive care. A pastor named John Piper said this, I feel like I have to get saved every morning because I wake up and the devil is sitting on my face. That doesn't sound great. That doesn't get me going in the morning, but it is a reality. Listen, can I say it this way? Your spouse wakes up being hated by Satan. Maybe some grace in the midst of their struggle. Your children wake up being hated by Satan. My children, I mean, it should stir me to pray and fight for them. My friends, my community, my church, the people in this room wake up being hated by Satan and he is plotting to find a way to take them out. And in some ways, we should grow a little angry about that. And that anger, man, should be righteous and lead us to prayer. And so as we read through this passage, don't see two friends arguing about right and wrong. See an all-out war. One commentary said you should call this phrase, this, 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 this 13 verses, torment from hell. That Satan is throwing everything he can at Jesus in hopes of causing him to struggle. It's just not a casual conversation, but a war. John 10, 10 says the thief comes to steal, kill, wow, and destroy. Kill, steal, and destroy. And there's another parallel I would point out you see in verse 2. And the parallel is found between the temptation of Adam and Eve and Jesus. Adam and Eve epically failed. It says they saw the fruit that they weren't supposed to have, and it was pleasant to the eye, so they took it and they ate it. Even though God was very clear. They epically failed. Yet Jesus epically succeeds. Adam and Eve were tempted in a beautiful garden of paradise. This is where we usually all sit back and go, that that was me though. That is you and that is me. It's where a gourmet feast was available to them at all times and all their needs were met. How about this? Adam and Eve for a time were never hungry, were never thirsty, were never tired. How about this? We're never annoyed. We're never hangry. They didn't lack anything. They even had companionship with one another and with God. Jesus was in a desolate desert. In fact, one of the most desolate deserts on earth, inhabited by spiders and scorpions. He was lonely. And in the scripture, as we've said, states, he was very, very hungry. In every scenario, listen, church, you and I are Adam and Eve, tempted and falling into sin. The gospel tells us that Christ, however, was tempted and remained faithful for us. Listen, when we are unfaithful, he is faithful. The gospel reminds us that when we fall into temptation, Christ knew we would. 
and still chose to give his life in our place as a ransom for us. He loves us this much. Listen, as you think about temptation, think about the times you've had victory and the times you've failed, our failings are not met with condemnation or shame or guilt. I'm just going to read that again because I don't know if it landed, but our failings, when we're tempted and we know what we should do and we don't and we fail, our temptations in Christ are not met with condemnation. They're not met with shame or guilt, but by a savior who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He experienced this so he can go, I know what it's like and I'm not going to shame you. I'm going to come towards you. Listen, his posture towards our sin is kindness. I mean, the Bible says in Hebrews 4, he deals with the wayward gently. So when you choose to go wayward, he's not angry. He's gently drawing you back. I mean, his, sin is, his posture towards our sin is kindness and calmness, tenderness. One Hebrew word is, is really the word soothing. And he is able to be this way because all the sin of man and wrath of God was poured on Jesus on our behalf. So Hebrews 4 says he understands because he experienced the same temptations you and I do. He didn't sin, but he experienced them. Romans 6 says his kindness leads us to repentance. And then Romans 8 says there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. So please hear me as we, as we begin to unpack man, this whole thing. This section is actually less about how you should deal with temptation and more about the fact that look at what Christ did. Because here's, here's what I know. You're going to sin again, as am I. Christ never did. And the thing that's going to bring me back, even when I choose to sin, is Christ's kindness towards me. Not as trying harder to not sin. We, we've got to stop trying harder to not sin and start focusing more on, look at who he is and how incredible he is and how beautiful he is and what he did and how even when I don't, he still draws me back in in kindness, calmness, and soothing. So listen, verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to be bread. Listen, bread is good. Bread is not sinful. Go eat it. Carb up today. Like, like it, it is a good thing. It fills him. Can you imagine 40 days and they lay out some Olive Garden bread sticks? You fasted for 40 days. Whole basket's gone in 30 seconds, right? Maybe you're a Texas Roadhouse guy. I don't know. But like, we can't think that this bread was, was the way. It's not sinful. There's nothing wrong with bread. But for Jesus to use his great power to minister to himself would have been selfish. And Jesus, by nature, had to live contrary to selfishness. And selfishness is the curse of a godless society. I mean, this first temptation Jesus is going to face is whether or not to be selfish, to meet my needs rather than, ready, trusting God to meet my needs. And don't think about it in terms of like, God, I want this. Will you give me this? But, I man, do I trust that the way God meets my needs is the way they need to be met? So the first temptation is physical. When we are tempted by physical things, we must ask, is Jesus better than the thing that I desire? This is what Jesus did. Look at his response. Verse 4. Turn this bread and stone into bread. Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And, and, and think about what he's saying. He's saying, yeah, I'm hungry, but God offers something better and more. He says, bread may fill me for a moment, but it's not what I need. Does that sound like sin? It might satisfy for a moment, but it's not what I need. It may fill me for a moment. Like, that's, that's sin. I want it for that moment. That moment's over and I'm going, ah. Oh. 
Do you desire, man, that? Verse, verse 5, he says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you, I will give all the authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. That whole delivered to me deserves its own study. We won't get into it. And it says, And I have given to whom I will. Why did Jesus come? And, and to be the authority, to be glorified. Satan is saying, I'll give you the thing you came for. I'll give you all the kingdoms if you will just worship me. And I, the idea here is I see it, I want it, I become consumed by it, and as a result, I stop worshiping God. And the second temptation is this idea of lust of the eyes. And don't, don't hear that as, as like sexual things. Lust of the eyes is I see something and I want it so bad, I'm willing to give up the worship of God to go after it. In the Garden of Eden... Eve looked at the fruit of the tree, and what was it? It was pleasant to the eyes, and it was fruit. It wasn't even bread. And we were created to worship God, and all Satan's trying to do is throw that off track. The battle between worship in the world or worship in the wants of the world and worship in anything else, even good things, is the battle we face. Look how Jesus responds again. Verse 7 and 8. If you will then worship me, all will be yours, Satan says. And Jesus said to him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. I mean, what do you worship or serve? Here's a question, good to write down, reflect on. What do you worship or serve that doesn't bring about the worship of God in your life? When we are tempted by the lust of the eyes, we must ask, is this thing that is captivating me better than the worship of God? And to worship anything other than God is to worship carnal things that were made by God and to miss the whole point. And then verse 9, the third temptation. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. So please notice, Satan is going to use scripture here to try to trick the word of God incarnate being Jesus. He's trying to use himself against himself. And on their hands, verse 11 says, and they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so he takes some scripture and he twists it to mean not what it means in a way of saying, hey, test God. The third form of temptation is test God. And the idea here is, is, is men, is, is do you live life apart from God or, or with God? Do you have an, I got this mentality. I can do this without God. Or has God a part of it? And here, here's, the, here's the bigger point there. I think most of us in this room would say, well, I can't do life apart from God. But the question is, do you? Because we can acknowledge all day long that I can't do life apart from God. But often we choose to do it anyway apart from God. So whether we acknowledge or we don't acknowledge it, testing God. This often has the appearance of godliness on the outside, but the inside is far from it. And it's one step of falling away completely. What does he say to Jesus? Throw yourself down. And God will protect you. And look at Jesus' response. It is said, verse 12, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. And we see three forms of temptation take place here. The physical, you want something. Do you trust God to provide or to be better than the thing you want? Because the question we, I ask, I just, I'll be me and you be you. Will God actually give me what I want? But the question I should ask is, will God actually meet my every need? Because God's not going to give me everything that I want. Because that wouldn't be good for me. But man, will God act, well, is God faithful to meet my every need? Absolutely. There's still breath in my lungs, food on my table, and water in my home. Man, 
when you are tempted with the physical, identify the selfishness and battle with it with worship and scripture. Like we, we know how to battle temptation. We shouldn't have to do a whole study. You battle temptation through worship and through scripture, through saying worship is Jesus is better and through scripture finding Christ in the midst of that. And so the first form of temptation is physical. The second was psychological, the lust of the eyes, that we are lured away from the worship of God by things that are carnal, fleshly, and worldly. And he's saying, hey, Jesus, don't you want this instead of that? It looks like this. I see it. I want it. I dwell on it. I think about it, and I go after it. And then sometimes I get it. And when you're tempted with the lust of the eyes, identify the thing that you're trying to worship that is not God. Because oftentimes what I've learned It's actually not the thing you're going after. And then the third one is spiritual. And the idea here really is I got this. I have no need for God. It's the sin of unbelief that we acknowledge God with our lips, but we don't believe with him in our souls and our day to day. Sounds like this. The church hurt me. Well, the church can't hurt anyone. Hurt people hurt people all day long. Sinful people hurt sinful people all day long, but the church can't hurt people. If someone's hurt you, the Bible says you actually have a command to go to them and say you hurt me. Man, life's not fair. Amen. Believe that. The Christian life is not what I thought it would be. If I asked you that as a question today, I think every room, every hand in the room would go up. Because Satan gives us this vision of what it should be, and then when that doesn't happen, we go, wait, am I doing something wrong? And social media has my faith triggered. Circumstances have me questioning everything. And when you're tempted by the pride of life, by unbelief, can I just tell you to identify the reason? But identify the reason. Here's why I don't want to believe right now. But here's what I want to go back to. Knowing how to battle temptation is extremely important for every Christian to know. Knowing how and why and where you might be tempted and how to fight is a massive deal. But this account, listen, is less about how to battle temptation and more about Jesus. Why was Christ tempted in such a way and this account given to us such so strongly? Two reasons. Please write these down. Number one, to demonstrate that you and I have a sinless Savior. Satan threw everything he could think at Christ and Christ didn't stumble. We have a sinless Savior. Do you realize if he stumbles once, even when no one's looking, he cannot offer salvation to any of us. He is sinless, impeccable, and able to save. To know Jesus, to have intimacy with Jesus, is to realize first and foremost, he is the sinless Savior. But at the very same time, and this is the most comforting thing you will hear all week, is we have this account so that we can remember that Jesus sympathizes with us. And please write that down, Jesus, and make it personal. Jesus sympathizes with me. Listen, here's what we do. God knows what I'm going through. That's, that's, that phrase sounds really spiritual. Like we could write a book, market it, throw it on Amazon, and probably sell it. He knows what I'm going through. Write a song, let's go, let's pray that. He no, 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 he doesn't just know what you're going through. Look at me, church. He's been there. He's experienced. He not only knows, but look, he understands what he's going through because he experienced it as well. So we don't have a Savior who is far removed. We have a Savior who is near going, I know I was there. I know I was there. I felt that too, felt that too, felt that too. Hebrews 4, I referenced it earlier, and I want to read it to you now. For we do not have a high priest, verse 15 and 16 of Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have a high priest. Jesus is not unable but one, in every respect, 
who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He has experienced every temptation we will experience, yet lives sinlessly. But then it says this, Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And our our posture becomes, I'm going to fail. I don't want to. I'm going to try not to. But when I do, I'm still going to the throne. Whether in victory or in failing, I'm going to the throne, remembering that my Savior is not mad. He's not condemning. He's not shame. He's not guilt. But he's drawing me and welcoming and offering unlimited mercy and grace, which is the very thing that actually keeps us from sinning. It's not if I try harder, but if I get a real realization of what he did, then I don't want to miss that. I want to honor that. I want to worship in that. When we are tempted and find victory or we're tempted and fail, draw near to the throne of grace confidently. In doing so, you find mercy and grace. And listen to what it says. And help in time of need. Man, when I'm victorious, I'm in need because I'm about to get really prideful, right? Guess what I didn't do this week, right? That's how we do, right? But man, when I fail, I want to draw close to the throne. Man, because... I'm in a time of need. Temptation and occasion put nothing into a man, but only draw out what was in him before, says John Owen. Here's what that means. There's some stuff that's going to come out of you in your life, and you're going to want to feel shame, and you're going to want to feel guilt, and you're going to want to feel like nobody loves me, especially God. And in those moments, you have to remember, I have a high priest, a, a, a savior, man, who's not ashamed of me, but is begging me to draw near to his throne and find mercy and grace. Listen, there, there will be repercussions in this world due to our sin, no doubt. Please don't hear me say something different. But, but our God's posture never changes towards us. We never get to this point where I can't believe you did that, Josh. It's never that. It's actually, Josh, just come back in. Josh, just come back in. Could you hear me? Like, There's never a time where God's going to go, <laughs> never. He's never like, oh, what a loser. Never. And I don't know about you, but Satan tells me that's not lies to me and wants me to believe, Josh, you're a loser. But, but man, Christ is going, no, I've been there. It's hard. Come to me. Throne of grace. Throne of mercy. Meet me here. I'm waiting for you. This is why we're talking about intimacy so much as we go through this series. Again, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The goal of every temptation is to still kill and destroy your relationship with God. And so in that, man, we draw near to God with confidence. Christ came because you and I will fail, will continue to fail, because we cannot get to Christ on our own. And I would leave you with Romans 5.8 before we take communion, which says, but God demonstrated his love for you and I, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we got better, not when we cleaned everything up, But listen, here's what that means. It means even at your darkest, at your worst, even when you were backing that truck out of the Home Depot parking lot and fleeing for your life in hopes you would not get caught, which is what I did, even at your darkest and worst, Christ chose to love you and to die for you. Not only that, but he dealt with temptation and can sympathize with you when you struggle. So I'd like to pray for you and lead us into a time of communion now, church. So God, we love you, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of scripture that teaches that you're not looking down on us disappointed or frustrated, but you look down on us welcoming us back into intimacy with you, saying, don't get too far. And you even call us beloved. 
God, would you draw us to you and would you even stir our affections as we take um, communion now? God, we need you and we love you. Amen.